Father God in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be in your word, expecting you to speak, expecting you, Lord, to minister, to draw us to this deeper and more meaningful place with you. I recognize tonight, God, that you have, um, you have a ministry for each of us here and now. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss any bit of it. And Lord, I want you to just please use this chapter, Lord, to instruct and prepare and warn and encourage that every one of us would be all the more equipped for every good work you've ordained. You've prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Lord, please. So Lord, immerse me in your spirit. Come upon me, strengthen me, and empower me, Lord, to do your work, your will, your way. Give us ears to hear. Give us hungry hearts to receive. Captivate us in your word. Color in the black and white, Lord, I pray. And Lord, where soul searching be need, need be done, Lord, do it. Let us, let us find ourselves in that place with the space to do so. But also, Lord, don't let us leave here not encountering you. So, Lord, even now, let your word really just grab a hold of us, captivate us, and may we have so much fun in your word now, I pray. Commit this time, redeem every second, please. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. I want to start with a standard God laid out back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. If you're familiar with the story, God is replacing, a, uh, in essence, a rebellious Saul with a teenager named David, Davidum, which means beloved. And he's um, more than likely his voice hasn't fully changed yet. He's probably got acne on his face. You know, he's still trying to figure things out, and he's probably much better at, his, at you know, all the apps on his phone than you are. And in all of that, as God sends the prophet, and I remind you, this is a prophet we're talking about, some of you would think as a direct line to God in that sense, to go and anoint the new king. The father, Jesse, Yeshe, has uh, eight children, of which he says, call your boys in here. I have a special, you know, I have a surprise for you. You know, one of them's going to be king. And uh, the dad calls in seven. Now, you don't have to be brilliant in math to know that eight isn't seven, and seven isn't eight. So seven of them are brought in. The youngest, David, on the other hand, is still left outside. And the uh, prophet is looking, and he looks at the oldest son. And as he looks at the oldest son, he thinks, oh, there we go. There's our replacement. Good-looking guy. And God says this in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, interesting, again, his name means has, God has heard. Don't look at his appearance or his height or his stature. Wait a minute, appearance, how good looking he is. Height, clearly how tall he is. Stature, how buff he is. So the guy's good looking and he's buff. And, you know. And all of a sudden, a young David Hasselhoff steps up and he says, don't look at all that. Because I refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Which tells you how a man sees. Ladies, man is mankind here. That includes you. This is how you see. This is how we see as humans. We see how cute they are. We see how built they are. We see how tall they are. Well, for what it's worth, I got one of the three. That's good enough for me right now. Now, and he says, this is the way the man looks. Man looks and he says, these are the things that make someone important, if you will, from a distance. He says, but though man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the, and the term in the Hebrew is lavav. Try that word, lavav. Oh, that was fun. But hey, come on, it's, it's Hebrew. Hebrew, you cannot go to lavav. Lavav. Lavav means insides. So in the simplest sense, man is looking at the outside, God is looking at the inside. And though big bro looks really good on the outside, he ain't looking so good on the inside. Though he looks really cute, impressive on the outside, inside he's not so cute. Though he looks really tall on the outside, and with that, he's really buff. He looks really strong 
on the outside. This is a good guy. He's a king. We want someone tough. After all, that's our gang leader. He's going to be the first one to fight. I want, you know what? I want my guy to be able to beat up your guy. I don't know if you've heard, by the way. I've, rumors have it that Dwayne The Rock Johnson's looking at running for president. Have you heard that? Now, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I've heard that he, he's actually joked about it, if nothing else. And I'm sure the T-shirts will go out as soon as it happens. My president can beat up your president. You know, that kind of idea. Well, I mean, like, you know, who doesn't want somebody big and strong and all that? And it's like, look at God sees it from a difference. We look and we go, look at how impressive. Look at how enticing. Look at how strong. Look at how stable. And God goes, look at how weak. And look at how small. And look at how insignificant in regards to the heart is in his connection with God. God goes, I don't want that. The reason I say that is this is a chapter we see that borne out. Things don't always look the way they look. It all depends on what you're looking at. That's why I like to say when someone's about to take our picture, I usually say, can you get my good side? And they'll say, what side's that? I say, my inside. Well, understand in this, as man sees the outer appearance and he sees all of this, the outside of the cup may be very clean. And that's what the Pharisees, Jesus had ridiculed. He said, hey, you're really busy at polishing the outside of this thing. But the inside, on the other hand, it's a mess. It's, it's going nowhere. It tells us in Proverbs fourteen thirteen, even in laughter, the heart may sorrow. Well, you might be laughing on the outside, but the heart, on the other hand, the inside, that's another story. And even the end of mirth may be grief. God sees the levav, the inside, the heart of the issue, might I say, is the issue of the heart. By the time we get to 1 Kings 11, we're going to read Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Now, there are other people in Scripture we see different than that. For instance, a man named Caleb. By the way, his name means dog. And he's in Numbers 14, 24, and we read, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, has followed me fully. And this was a guy that by the time he gets to 85, he still wants to go fight and get the land that was promised him 40 years ago. I like a guy like this. I'm like, 85, I don't care. I'm going to give me, I'll go fight for it. It's like your leg's falling off. But he's I don't care. If God said he's going to give it, we're going to get it. The difference between complete and perfect following is from the inside out. That's the point. And we have a son here, Solomon. By 2 Samuel, when we kind of see him sort of enter under the scene, under the stage, 2 Samuel 12, 24, we read that David had comforted his wife. She, he laid with her and she has another son. His name means brings peace, Shalomo, Solomon. And it says the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. And so they called him Yedidiah. Now, Yedidiah, we might say, I, I always look at this name and there's a, there's a part of me that thinks Amish, because I think half of the boys in some of the Amish countries are named Jedidiah, because that's Jedidiah, it's Yedidiah, but it means loved of God. It's a great name. Didi, like David, you know, loved because of the Lord. So, I mean, this is a guy who gets the nickname by God, loved by God. Who wouldn't want that? And he's the son of David, much like ourselves, loved of God and a son of David now grafted in because of Jesus Christ. First Samuel thirteen fourteen, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That was dad. Now, no doubt dad did some really stupid things. And the legacy of that would, be, would obviously reek. And though he did some dumb things, though, the legacy of his heart was another story. And what that tells me is a guy that really still loves God and has a heart for him doesn't, is not completely immune of doing stupid things. Now, after Solomon has done a bit of housekeeping left by his dad, now he starts to clutter the house himself as he starts to amass his own clutter. And in verse 1, we read that right away. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this whole chapter, what we're going to need to look at is the outside and the inside. From the outside, it actually seems like a really good idea. Let's face it. What you're doing is you're performing a treaty, a peace treaty with your neighbors. You're probably aware of the fact, even to this day, Israel's surrounded by people who hate them. Directly to the south is Egypt. Directly to the east is Jordan. 
to the northeast is Syria. That's, you know, it's, there's three different groups fighting, and the only thing they have in common is they all hate Israel. And then the group just above them is Lebanon, and then, you know, and then to the west of them, northwest of them is Turkey. Which one of those wants to shake hands with Israel without dragging him into the sea? And then you go farther east from Jordan, and you've got Iraq and Iran, go south, that's Saudi Arabia. Which one of those goes, yay, Israel, yay, Israel? None of them do that. They all want them dead. They're kind of used to that. Well, what's the easiest way to get someone not to want to kill you? Marry the king's daughter. Because let's face it, he's not going to kill his daughter unless, unless he hates her, in which case you might want to say, hey, do you, do you hate your daughter for me to marry her? I mean, it, 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 you can see that from the outside, that seems like an intelligent thing. He's making peace with a potential enemy. The problem is from the inside, it's disobedience. And please hear me on this. There are so many times we play this whole thing off Well, what we're really doing is we look like these heroes. When we seem so smart and we seem, wow, look at how dipl- diplomatic that person is. And oh, look at how they're making friends with all those lost people. And oh my goodness, look at their ministry. And then in the end of it, there's really no ministry. All they really want to do is be a part of that thing instead of influence. And that's a very different world. You know, imagine the doctor's like, you know, I just want to hang out with my sick people. And you think, what a caring doctor. And in the end, all he really wants to do is die early you know I just I hate my marriage and I hate my family and I hate you know and all these bills and all the mortgage if I could just get one of those diseases and die early that would be great and you're like wow we look so good on the outside but you can't see the heart this is what we know in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1 it says when the Lord God brings you and this is before they even took the land when the Lord God brings you into the land you're going to possess and cast out many nations before you the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites you get it? Seven nations greater and mightier than you, you shall not, it tells us, make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, know their daughters, their, take their daughters for your sons. This is why. God doesn't say, the idea here, please understand, God has no problem with interracial marriage. It isn't like he looks and goes, you know, that person's a little dark for you, or, oh, you really, do you want to marry a ginger? God's not doing any of that. What he says is, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The issue is not a race thing. The issue is a God thing. And this is what God knows. If you're going to be attracted to someone, and again, we're attracted on the outside. God's attracted on the inside. And what we're attracted to, she's just fine. Man, she's everything I want in a godly woman. What's that? This is the color of her hair. This is her shape. Well, where's the godly part of that woman? You know, and it's like, oh, I'm so, you know, and I, I see people like, I was so drawn to her and I just love her because she's a good Christian girl. Tell me about it. What does that mean? Well, first of all, she's this tall. And let me tell you, she crossfits. Oh, CrossFit's like she works out with the cross, you know? No, no, actually, she just bench presses. And, you know, and they're like, oh, my goodness. And you should see, she, you know, and it's like, wait a minute. I'm missing the whole drawn to the godly girl part. And Solomon here, what God says is, here's the problem. If you're going to be, if you're going to open your heart to somebody because of the way they look, then you really aren't, you're being careless with your heart to someone whose inside may be ugly. And here's the scary thing. The outside's the part that's probably as good as it's going to get a lot of times. And I'm not trying to be weird or mean, but let's be honest. There comes a day when you hit in the top of the mountain and it's only downhill from there. Now you could get the surgeries and nup and tick and you know suck and nip and all that stuff and inject pig fat in your face, whatever. And sooner or later, but sooner or later, gravity is going to win. And, you know, it's like it doesn't matter how big your pecs are, sooner or later they're going to make their way into your stomach. That's just the way it works. And that washboard now has become a washing machine. I get that. And I'm not trying to be mean. The point is, is that if that's what you're drawn to, you know it's extremely temporary. But if there's a person that loves God on the inside and that's the thing you go, I just can't stop thinking about it. Look at the weight. Look at the kindness and compassion that comes out of that person. That gets better with age. The inside's the part that gets better. The outside gets to a hill and it rolls down it. And, you know, it's like, can I say, it's like there's an old expression where I come from that's like, I'm coming down the hill, you walking up. In other words, I've already been up there. I can tell you what's up there. And can let me just say, Solomon here is looking and from the inside, this is an act of disobedience. God says, look at, don't be going and chasing after girls who love other gods because their hearts are already taken. And let me just say, she come with baggage. And the baggage she's coming with is another God you don't want in the house. And he tells us, don't be unequally yoked. 
Well, in, in Deuteronomy 17, when God talks about what a king's going to do, and they hadn't asked for a king yet, but he says, when you do, because I know you're going to. He says, he must be Jewish. He must be from your family, among your brethren, is the term he uses. And he must not multiply horses for himself, and neither should he multiply wives for himself, nor silver or gold. And this is the whole point, is that from the outside, that looks really good. But from the inside, what that shows is that that heart that should be trusting in God is wandering to other things that are temporary. Well, here's our spoiler. If you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Kings 11 for a moment and look at verses 1 through 3. Matter of fact, you better go one for four. Don't worry, I won't do this with every verse. We won't be here, or we'll be here until, you know, 2018. It tells us this in 1 Kings 11.1. But, and but's a bad but here. King Solomon loved many foreign women. So guess what? We just got the tip of the iceberg. I guess Pharaoh's daughter was gateway. As well as the daughter of Pharaoh, as well as them, there were a lot of women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations whom the Lord God, Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. God says, this is the issue. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives. 700 wives. That's, that's two, by the time we get to the comments, it's two straight years of weddings to plan for. That's 700 mother-in-laws. Well, maybe there's sisters in there, but that's just weirder too. It says he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That's a thousand girls in the house to keep happy. I don't know what kind of man Solomon thinks he is, but a thousand women's way too many. You know, and it's like, you know, but he's basically, you think that that whole, like, the image of the rap video stuff is new? This is, this is Solomon, right? He's like, yo, check me out, yo, check me out, yo, check me out. This is my girl, this is my girls, and this is my girl. Now, I mean, sooner or later, like, seven you can name him after days of the week. So you go, hey, that's Tuesday. You're, uh, you're women. But, I mean, imagine it's like, this is my wife, what's her face? I mean, how many women do you go before you get to what's her face? 10, 15, 20? It's like, you know, I mean, there's got to get a point where he's like, did we get married? Were we actually married? You know? Yeah, I am number 918. Wow, there was like another beyond you. You know? And it's like, the point is, it's like, here's the issue, and please hear me in this, is that Solomon, as much as we can make about this, Solomon is clearly hungry for something he's not finding. But he keeps going to the same store to get it. It's like he goes to the store and he's like, I'm really thirsty. And like, here's some salt water. And he's like, oh, I'm thirstier yet. And he goes back. I'm really thirsty now. Here's some more salt water. Oh, I'm really thirsty. How far do you have to keep digging before you realize all you're doing is putting a grave in there? And it says, then the wives turned his heart away from the Lord. It says, it was so that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart against other gods because his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. And the word loyal there is the word shalem. And shalem, by the way, means complete. It didn't go to its rightful end. And you know what that's like because you've ever been on a bus that has those beautiful words, bus on diversion. You ever been there, right? You're like, oh, I'm so excited about getting there. Oh, I'm not getting there at all now, you know. You know, it's like, and, you know, the nice thing about trains is they may stop, but it isn't like they're like, well, we decided instead, though we've been on the northern line, we decided to be the central line. That doesn't happen. But on a bus, it's like, we just decided to go and, you know, I know we're kind of near Waterloo, but let's go up Crouch End for the fun of it, you know? And you're like, well, that's a diversion. And that's what was happening with, with Solomon. He so did not have a clear route about who he was actually going after that it was very easy to turn the wheel. And the reason I'm saying all of this ahead of time is I want you to realize that this all started with a girl in verse 1. And you watch a person that's like, you know, and you go, well, then it should be easy for you. You're married. You know, like, the bottom line is if Jesus isn't enough, who is actually going to fill it? If Jesus isn't enough, who do you think it can go? Well, most of the way... The, you know, 99% of infinity is handled by God. That other 1% of infinity, I've got someone in mind. 
I'm not telling you you're going to get married or fall in love, but what I'm telling you is make sure you know who your first love is. Because if, he's, if Jesus really is your first love, you really will have a standard that you don't just speak about on the outside, but you'll mean in your heart. So from the outside, it's a great idea. Sequesters and guarantees peace. Kings don't invade and attack one of their own. But on the inside, this was a sign of a wandering heart. And here's the problem. I wonder from his peace when I seek security away from him. I wonder from his joy when I seek my own love away from him. I wonder from his blessings when I seek in my own greed something else instead. And I actually wind up finding myself in insanity when I turn from Jesus to seek the things exclusive to Jesus and I'm looking somewhere else for them. So I start to ask myself, how much of my Christianity is outside observances? How much of my honest passion, the part that's the passion in my heart, looks the same as what appears to be their passion on the outside? The downfall for Solomon, I start to look at him at a solo man at this point, was his lust for love. And the dysfunctional family that he came from, his brother was a rapist, his sister was raped, his dad had a scandal with mom even before him. You could see how what he saw called love lived out in front of him would actually kind of sow that seed. And God tells you, man, you reap what you sow. Dad had at least 20 children from at least eight wives. So it wasn't like it was weird, but let's face it, boy, talk about outdoing dad. Dad, you have 20 wives. I've got 50 times that. And if I let media dictate true love, because that's where it'll be modeled, I'll be a mess too. Well, we need to move forward, but I want us just to take a moment and consider the fact, what do you really love? I mean, love. I'm not talking about in a room like this where we could raise our hands if we're really feeling it. What What do you lay awake giggling over? Obsessing over, wishing, wanting. What's the greatest hunger and appetite inside you that other people don't see? You know, David would say, On my bed, I think of you. I think of you in the watches of the night because you are my hope. I will sing under the shadow of your wing. David wakes up in the middle of the night and he's thinking about God. Wow. Can you imagine? Now I want to warn you. If you're the kind that really loves to romanticize the Song of Solomon, King Solomon writes a song and calls it Song of Solomon. That's a good sign, by the way, for you to kind of, a good indicator right away. This is Solomon's song. What's the song about? A girl who is enamored with the king. Who is Solomon? Oh yeah, he's a king. And she looks and what does she say? Ooh, baby, baby. Ooh, baby, baby. Your legs are like bronze pillars. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, women's like, oh, and look at that face. And oh, that, oh, that chest. I mean, look at what he's saying. Now, I want to remind you, he's writing this about a girl looking at the king. You getting that? The songwriter is going... Ooh, she's looking at me, and this is what she's saying. Check out those legs. And there are people that, I mean, hey, don't just believe me. I mean, check the scripture yourself. And people are like, well, it's so romantic. It's romantic. It's all on the outside. I mean, and like the thing is, she's obsessed. She can't, she's got to find him. He's like an addiction, and he's her hit. And she's got to find him. And she's going to go through neighborhoods and get raped and beat up. And she doesn't even care. She just, she's got to be with him. And people are like, this is, this is just like Jesus with me. I hope not. You're Solomon in the story? Because, you know, it's like, you know, no, no, no. You're the woman that really, no, no, we're not. Who's the one who loves us so much that they would chase after us and get beat up? That's Jesus in the story. He's more the gal in it than he is the king in the story. And it's like, what kind of guy writes a song about women wanting him? Oh, that's everything on the radio right now. But that's the idea, right? Oh, you want me? Oh, you want me? Oh, you want me? No, no, didn't before and I don't know. Now, now please hear me in this. We're not even done with verse 1. Pray. Okay, so hear me. So here's the point, is that Solomon goes and he marries this girl, and we all go, King, that was such a smart move. 
And God goes, mm, I'm not liking this. Then he brought her to the city of David. That's the city of her father. By the way, Jerusalem, for what it's worth, is shaped like a paintbrush. One of those big old-fashioned kind that's kind of square with a handle. And the handle part is the city of David. It's the southern part of Jerusalem. And the rest of it's the Temple Mount. So he takes you down here until he gets stuff built, is what it says. So he finishes his own house in the house of the, of the Lord. So, you know, it's, it's like, here's the thing. When a king tends to marry another dignitary's daughter for that, he tends not to actually be very close with her. But they, they shacking up. That's all I have to say. And it says, it says it right here, in the wall around Jerusalem. By the way, she's tucked away as he goes about God's work. Interesting thought, isn't it? That's what it looks like. But she's more than a political maneuver now. She's a paramour from Egypt. And by the way, for what it's worth, in First, uh, First Kings 6, what we're going to find is that Solomon does build a temple. It takes him seven years. But do you know how long it took him to build his house? His house? Thirteen. Almost twice as long to build his own than it did to build God's house. I don't know where that is on that. And of course, my first thought is, well, if I'm not really sure where my passion really is, you know, uh, you know, maybe this is a little distracting, isn't it? They're kind of doing demo work next door, which at least is a comforting because the sound at first I thought was Daniel. So this is making me very comfortable. Uh, I just want you to know I'm aware of your problem. Now, if I'm, if I'm lying to myself, because Jeremiah tells me my heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things, which means I, I get lied to more by my heart than I actually do by Satan, that... That if I, I go, well, you know, I think my passion's in the right place. Well, then let me ask, according to this, where am I spending more time on? Where's my mind spending more time on? Because according to this, he spends almost twice as much time in his own house. But let's face it, you got a thousand women to take care of. It, it's really hard to show up to work. Now, verse 2, it says, Now, meanwhile, while the king's doing all that, it says that the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord in those days. Now, originally God had built a tent. You know that from Exodus chapter 25. And that was where he wanted people in. And at the, in, at the very inner of it, uh, the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodeshim, was the ark. What's interesting is David had brought the ark into Jerusalem. However, the tabernacle, the tent building, was still in Gibeon now. So now all of a sudden we've got this weird thing because the place where they're supposed to seek the Lord, where the standard is, you have to enter, and there's only one way you enter, it's through the east. And from there, there must be a sacrifice because you really can't, there's only one way in, and it involves a sacrifice. And of course, all that points us to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. He's the only way in. And you have to make sure that the sacrifice is perfect. And Jesus was the spotless lamb sacrificed for our sin. So all of that makes sense. What's interesting is you wanted to do that so you could get to the place where you were intimate with God. That was the idea. But the ark isn't even there. It's actually in another place with a whole new set of standards. Interesting because after Solomon's temple gets destroyed and the new one that gets built in Jesus' day that Herod built up, doesn't have the ark in it either. So this whole thing sounds fairly, fam uh, fairly familiar in this. It's similar. Here, by the way, people are kind of like, well, now what do I do? It's kind of confusing. Do I go there and do my sacrifice and enter through the east and I don't? Well, why do I have to kill my cow when I could just go over here to the box? I mean, and that's kind of how confusing it is. But what happens is it becomes a free-for-all that God said there is a standard. And that standard is there should be a sacrifice in your heart on the inside, a sacrifice there when you're coming to me. Not God just give me, give me, give me. So on the outside, we could be singing and raising our hands and waving and wagging and doing all the holy, cool things we think really make us look like we're way on it. But inside, we're just going, God, this, how long do I have to do this before I get what I'm asking for? And if you've ever been with someone like that, even if it's just to hang out with them for a little bit, you know that in their conversation, it's going to lead to, so could you give me? Let's face it, it happens all the time out there. Usually, there, at least there's a... a, a kindness almost that a guy's like he doesn't even they just cut to the chase right they're like spare change please i mean that's all they say to you right but you know the kind of guy's like hey how's it going bro all right oh yeah yeah i'm just got some water got some water i was gutted because it was water it wasn't water and you're like i really have no clue what in the world you're saying and he's like but it's like and they like speak in a way you can't understand. and then they're like but may i and then it's like shakespeare comes up but may i have some change please it's like Oh, well, that's the part you're going to work on. And it's like, you know, and you kind of know from the beginning, this person is engaging me, and that's where they're going with it. That's the ultimate end of it. The rest of it's just a means to it. And you feel used, don't you? 
And the person's got the clipboard. At least they warn you because they wear a shirt that says they're from whatever charity. And they're like, hi, do you have a moment? You know? And you don't want to be rude and go, I don't see you because I clearly see you. You know? And it's like there are times where you know you're in the spirit and you kind of know. There are other times where you're mischievous if you're anything like me and I'm with a bunch of my friends and I'm like, first one of us that gets approached has to hug the person that approaches them. You know? And then you know what you do is you all walk, you all put on your stink face because you don't want it to be you, right? So you're like, don't come near me. You know? And they'll be like, hi. And they're like, oh, they got you, you know. And there's, there's that. And there's, then there's the times where you're totally in the flesh. And they come up to you and you pretend like you, you're like, you just pretend like you're speaking another language. They're like, well, okay, forget it. I'm not talking to you anyways. Yeah, I'm confessing too much here, aren't I? The point of it all is this. The point of it is, is that we know what it's like to be approached for someone where clearly we are a means to the end. We're not the end. It isn't like they want to hang out with us. What they want is we are an opportunity to get something from. And we don't like it because it makes us feel used. It makes us feel cheap. And then I turn to my relationship with God and go, how much of that is me and you? You're like, I just want to hang out and be with you and enjoy you. And you're like, so how far before, how long before I get the spare change, please come in. And I realize, wow, God, I realize I really shouldn't make up the rules myself. You made them for a reason. No. Second Chronicles 1.3, just so you know, tells us the high places in Gibeon. That's the place where the tabernacle was. We're going to see that here a little later. It was clearly in a clear location, but high hills are convenient anywhere. And by the way, this is a really key thing. I mean, from the outside, it just looks like people are accessing God everywhere. Look at man, they're just, there they are, friends outside of their house. They're just, and you hear this, you know, I just want to go to a church really close to me. Hey, that's cool if the church is actually, if the only reason you want to go is because it's convenient, I'm concerned. Like you, you dodge, you take dodgy teaching and you take a lack of fellowship and all kinds of things just so you could say you've ticked your box and gone someplace close. Hey, find a place where you love God and where you could be the most blessed and the greatest blessing. And I say, go for it. But if it's just that, it's, it's like going on every high hill. I'll take whatever's closest. And that's what it looks like on the outside. But the inside it required a personal sacrifice that... That I realize that is important to me. It's God's rules of engagement, not mine. He's to be the Lord. And so then I ask myself in my own soul searching, am I led by what is convenient or by what's really truly content? Let me get to verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense on those high places. That's all it looked like. He was just kind of doing it everywhere. Here's the problem. And forgive me for getting a little grammatical. But Hebrew only has two verb tenses in the simplest sense. We have three, past, present, and future. Either it did happen, it's happening now, or it's going to happen. We think linearly. Hebrew mind says it's either it's done or it's not. It's pretty simple. The reason I say that when it says Solomon loved the Lord, it's in the imperfect tense. What that tells us, he loved him, but he didn't love him completely. It wasn't like, wow, that's a done deal, man. And you know, you watch certain people, man, you watch. They committed and they committed. That was it. They just committed to commit. And the other people, it's like, oh, they meant it when they stood up there. They really meant it at that moment. But it was an imperfect kind of commitment. And that's what we see here. And God knows that. What we see really is that Solomon from the outside really, I mean, you go, wow, that guy really loves the Lord, man. Look at him. And it just seems like he gets to a hill and there he is killing a cow up there. What a guy. And you know people like that. As a matter of fact, when it tells us he sacrificed, it's in the PL mode. And what that means is he really, it's intensive. He really, really sacrificed. And he was, man, this was a guy that wasn't just like killing this guy. He was like, you know, he wasn't just going, yeah, hallelujah. He was like, yeah, wow, I love God. You know, and you just watch this guy and you go, that guy, man, it's like, that guy's incendiary. It's like, if I can stand near him, I'm going to catch on fire. You know, and you watch some people like that, and it's like, yeah, but is it, you know, emotions are a really great ignition and perhaps a good accelerator, but they are no steering wheel. And you know, there are times where it's like, you are so emotionally convinced like Peter, I'm going to die for you tonight. And Jesus is like, you're going to deny you even knew me tonight thrice. 
Solomon's loving God, but not really in obeying, really in sacrificing, in public displays, because really Solomon's religion was outside. In his heart, it would engage sometimes. But the real committed part was the outside, and therefore the heart will ultimately win. It will always win. Now the king went to Gibeon, and this is what's going to show it a little bit. And obviously we may not get to the whole story tonight. Maybe that will bring you comforting. It says, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Gibeon, to remind you, is where the tabernacle is. It's not where, I'm sorry, it's, yeah, it's where the, the tent is. It is not where the ark is. It was the great high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And what a grandiose display that would be, right? The blood trickling down the hill on every side. This guy, you know, we don't have anything like that. The closest thing we can have to that is someone that's like, I sold my house and gave all the money to that public ministry or whatever. I mean, it's the closest thing we get to it. Someone going, check out my check. And we don't even have those now. It's like, I tell you how much I'm putting when I tap this on the tapper. I mean, that's as close as we get. But in those days, it was a pretty obvious thing. It's like, look at the sacrifice. The problem is the guy was the king. He had all kinds. Of, he had no limit of cows. Killing a thousand cows for him would have been nothing compared to a guy that had none or little. But it looked good. Man, it looked good. Because he gave <laughs> from his abundance. And we have abundance, man. We have abundance. A little background music for my thing. A little theme music. <laughs> wow. You know, it's like, you know, if, if, if you, ever, you ever met actually someone who sells the big issue that you actually feel like you could actually have a really good conversation with? I mean, I'm not just talking about the guy that's kind of like, I hate you, give me money and take my magazine. There's a few of those, but then there's also those that are, there's a particular uh, guy that's actually hangs out near NY Fold. He's also kind of near Soho as well. He's, got, he's from Romania. He's got eight kids. His name's Andrew. He's a really sweet, sweet man. And, uh, and I'm going to lose my reward for this, but at least it's a good illustration. But in it all, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm walking by the first time I see him and he just, I'm just, the communication's one way I can tell he's really listening. And I'm trying to tell him about how God loves him. And I'm like, you know what? I was going to get lunch. I really had a, an extra hour and a half before I had to be someplace. Let's go grab lunch together. And he's like, what? It's cold. It's raining out. And he's like trying not to use his big issues to guard his head because he's wanting to sell him. And I'm like, come out of the rain. Let's get you some food. And I totally forgotten about it until I ran into him a little while ago. Uh, and another location kind of surprised me. And I was with my daughter, and he's just like, oh, I love your dad and all of this. And I'm thinking, yeah, check me out. At first, I'm like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, wow, I bought him a lunch. Yeah. Like it did anything. But for a moment, I had someone to talk to while I was there, and I was to get to talk to him about Jesus, which I love to do. And I just, and the only reason I say that is it's just, it was really no real sacrifice. It just looked like it to someone else. But I will say, at least I would say, that I believe my heart was in the right place. What I really wanted was to tell him about the Lord, and he got it. So that was good. You know, we can really do really cool display. We can fake it so good. And you can fool me. So don't even try, please, because it's no accomplishment. You get no reward for faking super Christian with me. Here, the king made this huge gesture, and then the Lord shows up at that sacrifice. This is the same place, by the way, where Joab lied and killed Amasa, if you're familiar with that. It says in verse 5 that at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and he said, Well, I give you. God shows up like a genie in a bottle to him. By the way, do you realize how many times God personally spoke to David like that? In the book of, of the Samuel books, First and Second Samuel, you won't find once. I mean, in the Psalms, you, it would definitely seem to differ. But there you don't read it. But he, it's like God speaks through prophets. It's Nathaniel, Nathan, or it's Gad the prophet. David gets drilled by God from people. But Solomon, God sort of shows up at his bed and he goes, what do you want? You just ask for it. It's in the imperfect tense as well, which I find interesting. God will appear at least twice 
personally to Solomon here and in 1 Kings 9 when, he's dead, when Solomon's dedicating the temple. And the question I ask is, well, what would I say? What would I say if God said, if I can give you anything you want, what would it be? Anything at all. What do you want? What are you really looking for? Interesting. When the two people that are two of the disciples of John the Baptist hear John say, behold, the Lamb of God, there he is, go follow him. And two of them follow him. The first thing that the first words Jesus speaks in the gospel of John, the first word spoken, he turns around and he says, what are you looking for? Not who. What are you looking for? Please hear me. And I, I, to be honest, I really genuinely believe this is as far as we want to go tonight. And the reason is because if we go beyond this, we're going to miss the whole point of this. It's going to get mushed up. Because the question now, here's the interesting thing. God could have showed up to Solomon on that hill with all the dead cows, with all the people going, that's my king, check him out, Mr. Sacrifice. And imagine at that moment, Solomon's response would be in light of all the people who are watching. Let's face it, our response in front of other people may be very different than our response in our bedroom at night when it's just us and God says, hey, it's just you and me now. So the outside doesn't matter. Nobody's looking now at the outside. It's just you and me, your heart laid on the table. What if there's one thing you want, what would you like? Now look at there is bad, you can ask for. God will lay that out next week. There is good, which God which will see as well. And then there's best. My question to you is, which one are you content with? Because there could be bad. Let's say, God, what I really want is give me some more stuff. I need stuff, man. I need stuff. Remind you, this is the king warned not to do that. He could have said, I want some more babes. He's going to get them anyways. And it's like, you know, it would be, must be rough to be a king because let's face it, if you say no, like they have you killed. So it's like, how do you know like she like really wanted to go out with you, right? You're like, you think I'm cute? Yes, king, you're the cutest. Oh, king, live forever. You are the cutest. Does, the, you know, does this robe make my, make my hips look fat? Oh, no, king, your legs are like pillars, you know? I mean, imagine, you're, you know, that's, that's the problem with being a king, I suppose. I don't know in that sense. But tonight, what if God were to do that tonight? And on one side, it could just be something inside of you that says, I need this. Give me a mate. Give me the winning lottery numbers. Kill my boss. Whatever it is. And let's say that's all about you. And then it could be, if we take that out a level, maybe it could be your dance partner. And what I mean by that is fear. Often you're probably aware of the fact that the moment that fear invites you to dance, it will always lead. You can't lead that dance. And it'll spin you around till you're dizzy. And you won't even know where in the world you are anymore. And you'll totally lose your footing. And it won't let go like that. Because to be honest, Solomon's going to ask from fear. And his answer is good. It's just not best. God never said to Solomon, you're a man after my heart. So then the real question is, and we end with this for the moment, what if you were to ask his dad? The one that's, God said, now there's a guy after my own heart. One thing. David, if there was one thing you desire, if there's one thing you would seek, you'd really want, what would that be? I think the reason God didn't show up and do this here, I mean, he knew in both cases, but David had already said it. He said, one thing have I desired, and that I will seek after. Now hear me on this. I only really have one thing I want, and because there's only one thing I really, really, really want, that's the one thing I'm going to go after. That's the one thing I'm going to chase after. My mind's going to be consumed with it. My plans are going to be consumed with it. My choices are going to reflect that. There's one thing I I just want so bad. I want this so 
bad. Man, if I could just have this. And everything that I can do to chase it, I'm going to go after it. So that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Like, God, if I could have anything, could I just move in with you? Could we just be together forever? Please? Because the rest of this stuff's going to be cashing in sooner or later anyways. It's all got its expiration, sell-by dates. I recognize that. They all have a date where sooner or later they got to wind up in the bin. But as far as the stuff, as far as the fame, as far as all that stuff, it's all going to the bin sooner or later. It's got a dump in destination. But, man, can, I, can we just move in? Can we just be together? Can you see why God would say, now there's somebody after my heart? Could we at least tonight want to want that? Does that make sense? Like, God, could I really... Could, I, could you put in my heart a desire to even want to be that way? Well, because if you were to ask Jesus the one thing he really wanted, he told us it in Matthew 13, when he said... The kingdom of heaven is like a man walking through a field. He had already defined the field in the previous, by the way, in um, the first of the seven parables. This is the sixth of them. or the, I'm sorry, it's the fifth of them. And he said that the field was the world. So someone's walking through the world. And he saw a jewel, a treasure. And for love of that treasure... Not just desire for it, but love of that treasure. For the fact that he goes, that's the one thing, the one thing he want. He says he gave up everything else so he could purchase not just the treasure, but the field it was in. And God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He didn't just so love a thing, he loved the field which you are part of because the reason you loved it is because you're there. Do you realize how valuable you are? You are so expensive. You, you individually, your name here is so expensive that only the richest being in all of the universe could afford you and it cost him everything. That's how precious you are. Is that the God you know? Because he wants you, and he wants you to want him. The death on the cross was because it was what was between us. The resurrection says now we can be together, but he demands to be the Lord because he doesn't want you going back to the place where you're separate again. He doesn't want you running off after he's betrothed you to him. And as we go to prayer, have you said yes to that, God? The one who's been chasing after you since you before you were born. He's already knew your name. And he's been, man, he's been painting sunsets forever for you to see him. He introduced you to somebody in this room so you could know him. And he is head over heels, irreversibly, undeniably, and irreparably in love with you. You're the one thing he wants. You're the one thing he wants. Imagine if we sat at God's bedside and said, though he never sleeps and slumbers, but and said, what's the one thing you want? Ask of it anything. Are we afraid to ask that because we're afraid he'll ask something we just aren't really willing to give? Because you know what it'll be. You, can I just have you? Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for the love you have for us, for the desire, and that we are not just things contractually driven, but we are things desired. We are wanted by you, and you know everything about us. It isn't like you're going to discover something and change your mind. You know everything about us, and yet you want us. 
Forgive us for forgetting that. Forgive us our wandering hearts that know implicitly that you are the only place where true peace and hope and love can be found. You are not just the route, you are the destination. And yet our foolishness compels us often to seek in places that are broken cisterns when the living water is before us and we abrogate ourselves from it, we remove ourselves from it so that, I mean, from, the, from it before us and we're dying of thirst while you are pouring forth your living water and saying, please come to me and trust me that you would be refreshed and be the font I've created you to be. And sometimes, Lord, we look in places that everything inside of us truly knows that it will never satisfy and yet we try anyways. Forgive us for that. Don't let us be like Solomon. They get so consumed by an appetite that should be rightly handed to you that we find ourselves indulging to the place of insanity to it's just ludicrous and obscene how far it can go before we just go, it just isn't going to work. And tonight here in this room, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and you know it, but you know you need to, and you know he's offering you his love, pray this prayer with me right now. God, I am a sinner. We know that. And you punished my sin on the cross of Jesus. We took all my guilt on his shoulders and hung there. My price was paid. My guilt was punished. And I have the opportunity to stand pure, pure, pure before you. But for that to happen, you ask for me to accept that gift and allow Jesus to be the Lord of my life. So I confess with my mouth, Jesus is my Lord. And my heart trusts that not only did he die for me, but that he rose from the grave just like you promised, just like scripture promised. So he's the living Lord of my life. Now, conquer my wandering heart. Be my first love. And let me dwell with you all the days of my life. Even now. Let the inside be totally right. And from that bear forth good work on the outside. But let it first be right where it needs to be in the heart. And from that bear forth a life that reflects it. So here I am, I'm yours. Thank you for wanting me. It's the least I could do. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to agree with me by saying, Amen.